Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of State of the Art. And uh, as, as everybody knows, if you've been following along, um, this month we've been doing the theme of the Black Creative with our first guest host, Trey Borden. Um, and, and as I know too well, you know, being behind the mic as the host, it's a lot of fun. But, uh, but one of the things is that the attention has to be on the guests the whole time, right? So... Um, so we wanted to bring Trey back and actually let him be the guest and get inside his brain a little bit more. Excited to talk to you face to face again, man. How you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm excited. It's nice to be uh, in the hot seat, I guess. <laughs> so, so let me just ask, like, how was it, man? What was what's your overall impressions, first of all, of of running a podcast and kind of getting to take the reins, selecting guests, and all that fun stuff. Well, I mean, I, I once I hosted a guest or I hosted a podcast before, uh, but it was for like a business magazine. So it was a lot more kind of regimented and the guest selection was a lot more based on uh, kind of notoriety and achievement. Uh, it was really interesting because, you know, as you know, uh, it was my idea to kind of only feature black people, which I wasn't necessarily sure about. Not I'm very sure about black people. <laughs> yeah. So I wasn't sure how that would be received by our guests. Uh, and, and yet I thought it'd be really important to try and reach out to some of the people that I know who are doing really amazing work and who may not have such a wonderful platform as this, uh, offered to them all the time. And so, uh, we went for it and I think it was really good. I mean, in terms of reaching out to this community to be guests, I think that, you know, you hear this kind of phenomenon about kind of like the all male panels, how, sure. you know, and you ask people, like, how did you not invite any women? They're like, we couldn't find any. Or, like, we, the women didn't say yes or whatever. And I think there is um, a little bit of that in terms of people not being used to being asked. And so being a little bit more reticent to appear. Uh, mm -hmm. it, wasn't, it wasn't as easy as I thought to find, like, the people that I thought would be compelling and who would be willing to appear on a podcast that maybe they never heard of, especially to talk about blackness. Um, but I think that, like, it worked out because the people who were down were the exact people we wanted. Yeah. Uh, so I enjoyed it. Yeah. And uh, I, I got to say, congratulations. You did awesome, man. Um, obviously listen to all of them. Uh, and, and I think you kind of hit the the nail on the head for the style that, that we run here at state of the art. Um, what, what, what do you think? So, so we did have this conversation, right? We, we kind of came to you this with this idea of inclusivity. Um, and there was sort of this reticence to take it all the way to like, let's do black people for black history month. Right. Um, and I, I'm curious, you know, you even talked about this with a couple of the guests. What do you feel like their overall reaction to that was, was it as reticent as yours was to bring this idea to them? Well, I think that everyone was down. Uh, I think that, you know, it was Leela who had talked about her problem with always being asked during February to kind of like contribute to, institutions and programming that may or may not always be um, as welcoming or inclusive uh, to black people. And I think that uh, they all got that. I mean, I, I basically explained it to all of them. I was like, look, they gave me, I mean, cause you know what? I actually didn't think about it until I was talking to her that like you guys asked me during black history month, you know, right. I thought I was, I thought I was imposing it on our guests, but it was actually already imposed on me. And I, you know, and I, I know Ethan so well that I didn't even think about that, but I was just like, you know what, so who cares? Ultimately, I'd rather have the platform than not. And if I get it, then uh, who cares what month it is? I'm going to uplift the people that I want. 
And I think that they all appreciated that. And so if, if I was white asking them, I think it would have been a way different reaction. Yeah. You know, yeah, so yeah. you guys were smart to have me as your kind of like vehicle. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny though, because we, um, to be honest, that's why we came to you with the idea of inclusivity, because this was, you know, when, when we came up with this idea of, um, uh, of themes that we're doing for this year, right? Um, we didn't, we didn't sit down and think like, what is women's month? What is black history month? What is X, Y, and Z? We just came up with what are themes that we find interesting that are happening in the art world right now, right? And, and actually, inclusivity is, you know, obviously a much broader topic than than just Black History Month or Black People sure. in Art, right? Um, but, you know, as reticent as you felt about it as a Black person, like, imagine the position that we're in as a couple, like, you know, well, me and Ethan are 30-something straight yeah. white dudes, and we're like, well, we want to approach this conversation, but we want to try to do it in a way that's authentic and... Um, and also not just like super kitsch and as as offensive as it is that we're trying to not right, be or embarrassing, you know. Right, 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 right. Um, so I appreciate that that you ran with it. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I think that that the episodes, um, the artists themselves seem to receive it really, really well. And I think at the end of the day, that's what the most important thing is, right? What are they getting out of it? Sure. And it's an opportunity for them to talk about themselves and also their work and also how themselves figures into their work. Um, I think it was Leela who was like, you know, true freedom is like not just being a black artist and not talking about black shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think another thing that came out of the episodes was that like, you can't not talk about it. Even you doing it is talking about it, even if it's not directly addressing race issues. And so I think that giving these people the opportunity to kind of really investigate their process and how their identity figures into that, which may not be as explicit of a conversation as they usually have around their art, was meaningful. And I, I think I heard back from all three guests being like, that was really interesting just to even think about it in those terms. Uh, and, you know, these people, all three of them, their work does tackle directly their identity, either as a, you know, a black female or a gender nonconforming uh, black artist or a mixed race person. So, I think that that's another interesting thing for your listeners. It's like sometimes your identity figures so much in your life that it can't help but be reflected in your creative process. And that maybe even is why you have a creative process. And I think that for people who don't necessarily have like a distinct identity issue, um, maybe they don't think about it as much because like they're kind of a default, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as a gay black person, like gayness and blackness is like constantly on my mind, you yeah. know? Uh, and it may not be the case for you. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I would be a, a white man month would be kind of, you know, interesting to investigate. Like if we were really going to investigate white maleness, because it seems like such a default for, yeah. you know, most of society that like we don't even say like we already know about what you're dealing with theoretically. So I think anyone can talk about it, but it was especially uh, rich to talk with these people. Yeah. Yeah. And was there any um, specific highlights for you? Was there anything that like really resonated with you or that you thought was especially poignant? Well, one of the things I liked is that there was a variety of people in terms of my previous relationship to them. So, you know, we started with Jessa, who's like one of my best, she's like a sister, one of my oldest friends, which I didn't want to highlight during the episode because I didn't want it to make it seem like that's why she was on there. And she definitely... Uh, she proved her worthiness on the podcast. And I think that one of the highlights of that episode was hearing from her more explicitly explain kind of like 
how she got to her process because I've known her so long that I just default that she is the way she is. But the, the, to hear about Cranbrook, to hear about how she was received, to like, you know, I know Jessa, but I can only imagine this like valley girl, black girl showing up at Cranbrook, <laughs> like trying, trying to make, you know, abstract art to fit in and then like literally getting to the point where she has to fly her campus talking about y'all racist. Yeah, which yeah. is like, now that's who she is, but it was really interesting to hear from her perspective, like the trajectory of that. Um, I think with Leela, it was, I mean, her, the highlight of that episode to me was her explaining the incident in North Beach. Yeah. Holy shit. You know, yeah. Can you imagine like Ugh. trying to get some water and someone accuses you of like a black man stealing things? Like that must have been so intense. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't even, I was thinking about like, do I have an experience that was like that fraught? You yeah. know, I mean, I've been called a faggot. I, I don't recall being called the N word like any in any adult setting. Um, but like even the, when I was called a faggot, it wasn't like in a threatening or kind of like it didn't pretend to anything that was going to happen to me. Um, so, yeah, I can imagine that that was like a really salient moment for her. And I'm glad that she funneled it into something creative. And for Martin, you know, and good, you know, and kudos to Martin because he came on board like with not a lot of notice. And I don't think had done this before. And I think he was really game. Yeah. Um, and I think that, like, to investigate, because you think of black artists, like, a lot of these people are, like, very, you know, introspective, somewhat emo, somewhat kind of, like, <laughs> you know, obviously they're artists. Right, uh, right, right. You know, to talk to, like, a former D1 athlete who has funneled that energy into being an artist, I thought was really interesting. It was interesting to talk to another male guest, because they had all been female before that. Um, and I identify with his experience of being a black person, in a really not black environment, just not only because there wasn't black people there, but also because like black people don't do this. Yeah. Like, can you imagine a black ice skater, surfer, skater, rower? <laughs> I, yeah. You know, I just... Yeah. So I, yeah. So I thought they all had something different to offer, which is also what I appreciated. They, you know, my worry about only focusing on black people was that maybe they'd all have similar experiences or kind of like the same thing to say about the topics. And, you know, it's obvious that like every person is different. Every black experience is different. It shouldn't be expected that they all have the same thing to say. And I think that was really hopeful. To, uh, I think that was, I hope it was helpful to your listeners to also understand that, that there's a multitude. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, even from my experience as someone who was involved in the process, I really appreciated sort of the spectrum. It was really nice. You know, I, I respect the fact that you didn't want to like highlight your personal relationship with Jessa to like bias it at all, but but it was also really nice to hear it. Like, you know, you could just hear in your relationship and how you're asking the questions. Like you can hear the, the, the it sounded like a conversation between a brother and a sister. Um, and then, you know, to go from that to, to Leela, who's, who, you know, is what I would consider a little bit more the stereotypical artist, right? Like uh, uh, a little bit more intense and much more, um, well, she and I, I'm curious to get your feedback on this. It seemed like of the three of them, Leela has incorporated identity in her work a little bit more and has actually spent a little bit more time sitting there thinking about how she represents that. Do you, do you think that's true? Yeah, I mean, her approach is definitely like, a, you know, extremely intellectual and also kind of like. Yeah. Uh, it's obvious that like she is thinking about black identity in all of its facets, you right. know, and that's like the genesis of her process where I think the other two, it's like who they are 
right. and how they think is more about the process. But she's thinking about like, what is blackness? Like, what is the black body? Like, what is black identity? And like, who imposes that? And like, what does that mean for space? And yeah, so I think that like of all the episodes, like she was the one who really explored that um, in kind of like all of its complexity. Yeah. And I think that that was really valuable. And it was also valuable to have the other two perspectives that was kind of like, here's how we got to this place. Yeah, definitely. Well, and and, and then obviously the thing with Martin Alexander Spratlin, you know, my love that it's four names. By I way. know. God. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's like just coming from that background that, that you would not associate with a black artist, you know, the skateboarding, rowing, like that's that's that was a very cool perspective. I really liked that. And I didn't know that when I asked him, actually. Like, so I was, you know, hey, will you be on this podcast? And he's like, yeah, sure. What is it? Uh, and, you know, I met him, you know, basically as soon as I got to Los Angeles uh, at the museum. But it, I was looking for his headshot. And so I Googled his name and this, like, you know, extremely dashing, like, I guess it must be like an athletic rowing, kind of like your, I want to say, it's not a mugshot, obviously, but it's like this picture of this dude in like a rowing outfit popped up at Syracuse. And I was like, were you a Syracuse rower, actually? He was like, yeah, I was. Like, how'd you find that out? I was like, because literally that's on the the internet. Yeah. Uh, And so, yeah, so that that ended up being perfect. I'm like, we haven't talked to a mixed person. We haven't talked to um, someone kind of like from this background. Like, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was, it was really interesting to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, so let's dig a little bit more into who you are, man, because, you know, you got the opportunity to talk to all these people, but obviously, you know, I, I'm here today to kind of get get your thoughts on the topic, um, but can you start with, like, how, how did you find your way into the creative world? Where does your interest in the art stem from? Uh, it's an interesting question. So, I mean, I, you know, my mom was, like, really a big art supporter, um, was, like, an arts commissioner in Sacramento uh dragged me all over the place she's the first black docent at the crocker art museum uh and so i've always had an appreciation but never kind of an identify i never identified w- as an artist and so um it wasn't until after business school that i started working with an artist basically like because i had no idea what i wanted to do and i knew he needed my help and so i started kind of being his partner and kind of trying to take his art practice and use it to get him opportunities and to kind of bridge the gap between what he was doing and kind of what businesses cared about or what foundations were funding uh, or kind of like what public spaces needed. And so that's my, so I kind of like had a backdoor entry, uh, so to speak, uh, (laughs) into the art world because I didn't know anything about it. And so I didn't really have any preconceived notions about like, you know, who are the gatekeepers or like, how is this going? And, and you know, in my viewpoint, I was like, this is all wrong. Like this, this like creativity and uh, accessibility should be the priorities in our society instead of these things that like only a few people have the keys for and only a few kind of like knighted individuals in the community or uh, industry get to express themselves with credibility. And so for me, I'm just like, from a business perspective, it, it doesn't make any sense to kind of have this like really uh, isolated world that only a few people can gain entry to. Uh, and so basically I started working with an artist and I started uh, approaching people who controlled spaces, you know, like Westfield Mall or neighborhood associations or developers and saying, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if people wanted to come here, you know, mm. because they like this community, because they thought things were cool that were happening here. And art's a great vehicle for that. And so my initial entry point into the creative field was like pitching people on allowing art to kind of take the place of nothing. 
mm. uh, which is a pretty easy sell. It's happening here. So like at least something will be happening here. <laughs> uh, and that was easy enough, but even still like, you know, there wasn't any funding, there wasn't any kind of expressed interest from the community. So really, um, my initial few years was about proving that people would do it. You know, if you build it, they will come type of situation. And they did. Hmm. Um, we had a, a, we had a gallery. And so in Sacramento, this is about 2013. Uh, there was a Westfield mall in downtown. And at that point, downtown Sacramento was like, where no one wanted to be. I mean, even the tenants of the mall did not want to be there, literally. <laughs> and, and so there was a, a kind of like a prototype Hyundai dealership in this mall that had left. And they left this like gleaming, beautiful showroom, you know, which is like a car showroom. So it obviously is meant to kind of showcase what's inside. Right. Very, very natural art space, but no one thought of that. And I'm like, you have this like giant space that's like, you know, boarded up in a mall and it's like in front of Macy's. So you definitely don't want it to be this, but there's no one who's going to move in here and pay this lease, as you know. Right. So give it to us and we'll create like a really creative space. We'll show art. We'll have events. We'll form a community and we'll kind of get people to come back to downtown who you're not able to attract right now. We were actually right next to a Forever 21, which was hilarious. <laughs> uh and so they, they said, sure. And so instead of paying $15,000 a month, which is what Hyundai was paying, they gave it to us for $250 wow. a month. And, you know, over the course of a few months, we had 100,000 people come. We had five artists whose studios were in this space. So, you know, some girl with a Forever 21 bag goes next door and she sees like people making art. She sees artists, you know, that's being created by people in her area. She can pick up local design and art objects from a few dozen artists in the region. I mean, it was such a dynamic space that when Lyft came to, Sacramento to launch, they actually chose our space to have their launch party at. Wow. You know, instead of like many, many other venues that were much more established and probably much more equipped to have such an event, but they really like the, the it kind of represented the creative enthusiasm and, and kind of momentum of Sacramento at the moment. And so that was my first foray into not working with just an artist, but working with the space. Hmm. And uh, it nearly killed me because yeah. I was like, <laughs> the PR person, the event planner, the curator, and the mop guy, and the janitor, you know? So it was like, yeah. and it didn't make any money, obviously. You right. know, I made enough to kind of like, you know, allow us to exist and allow me to, you know, I'll be alive, but it wasn't more than that. And it was actually a really frustrating time because at this point I'm like, I have my Yale degree and my MBA and I'm like literally mopping in a mall. <laughs> like, <laughs> what happened to me? And my friends were literally like, are you okay? I'm like, I don't know actually, but you know, I'm going to follow this until it doesn't make any more sense. And that kind of led to big public art projects like the mural by Underbelly I did with LC Studio Tuto, which was, you know, working with Caltrans to create a 70,000 square foot mural underneath a freeway where the farmer's market is. And that is kind of like where I started nudging towards there being some kind of kind of socially, <clears throat> excuse me, socially progressive perspective with these projects, because at first fun and vibrance and creativity was enough. But, you know, the, the longer I started doing it, the more I realized that, like, if you're just accessible and free to people who are already accessing a space, who typically already have privilege because they're, they're here already, right. um, what are you really saying? And so now my practice has much more to do with, like, identity and kind of what is at stake? Who are the people who need to be involved in these conversations? And kind of, like, how do you confront people with their biases? Or how do you engender empathy? Um, through your projects, and that's kind of what I do now. So, so what, a, as a, a black gay man, how does how do you find your own identity sort of informing this work? I mean, I, you know, 
obviously, anytime you're in the creative world, like regardless of what your identity is, art is about identity, right? I mean, it's about a lot of things, but, but can generally be a lot about identity. How do you find your own identity sort of informs the projects that you're taking on and, and your enthusiasm for those projects? Well, it, it, more and more it does. I mean, obviously, it, it, you know, I can't help but see things through my perspective. Um, and, you know, I'm black and gay, but I also like went to an Ivy League school. I also am fortunate enough to have like a really supportive family environment. Like I, it's interesting that even in my perspective, I feel like sometimes I am not being as progressive as I, I could be because of my other privileges and advantages. And so I'm pretty conscious of that. And I think that, uh, you know, I think that, I try and I try and leverage my access to broaden kind of who has access to the things that I'm doing. So, for instance, there's a project that we're pursuing now that's called, well, tentatively, it's called like 50 Years of Pride. And so basically, like this year is uh, the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. And so it's a very momentous occasion to kind of reflect back on the LGBT movement and kind of where we are and where we're where we need to still go. And so we, uh, I'm working with uh, artists in Phil America who uh, works with flags a lot in his practice. And so we've taken this new design of the flag that it's called Progress by an artist named Daniel Quasar. And essentially it adds several stripes to the flag that reflect identity. So they have a black stripe, a brown stripe for black and brown people. They have uh, teal and pink stripes for trans people and also a stripe that represents people who have HIV. Mm. And the whole purpose of it is to say like, Here's like the actual umbrella of the LGBT movement. And like, why not start reflecting that explicitly? And so we've taken that as an inspiration to design a, basically a visual oral history. So we'll assign each stripe color to like, you know, a subsect of the LGBT movement. Um, some are explicit already. Some will have to define. And then we're going to kind of prompt people from that community to respond about kind of like what the last 50 years have meant to them, what their role has been, like what their reflections on um, the kind of future of this movement are, and then, you know, kind of hand paint that text on each flag and then display them as like a 50 to 100 flag installation at the culmination of each Pride Parade. So it'll start in L.A. and then culminate in New York. And, you know, in L.A. Pride, we just had a meeting with them this week and they're extremely down. It really was exactly what they were looking for. And so with that project, I feel like I like to do projects for like really only I could be doing it or... Hmm. It, it wouldn't happen if someone else did it. And so I think that that's kind of informs my practice. It's like, I am gay. I am black. I am progressive. I believe in equity. How does that manifest in a business? Hmm. Like, especially a business that creates art. You know, how can that be profitable? How can that be something that other people could emulate? And I think that like, you know, when I look back and I'm, you know, I have, you know, no school debt. I was fortunate to have a scholarship through, college and MBA and when I lived in New York and I, you know, have all of these relationships and I have all of these um, points of entry to create things. And I'm, I'm like, if I can't do it, if I can't question what I'm about and I can't do something I believe in, then like, how can we expect people with like much more burdens hmm. to be the ones who do this? And quite often the people who are really pushing this agenda have many, many more burdens and that's why they're so empathetic. And so, uh, and that's why they, they know it needs to happen so much. So that's kind of where my identity figures in. I'm like, if I as a resource rich black gay person can't be about black gay shit or about like everyone having shit, then like who the <laughs> fuck is going to do it? <laughs> right, right. Why? So where do these, you kind of keep talking about like these, 
like being resource rich or, or having many points of entry. Where does that come from for you? Well, I mean, it comes from a variety of places. I, mean, I think it comes from some kind of um, some intrinsic place where I'm like, I am worthy. Yeah. Uh, and I, I probably assign that to, you know, my family and uh, my my parents, especially my mom. Uh, and then, I, you know, I, I've, I've gone to places where I've seen like what true resource rich is, you know, like Yale, you, know, you go there and you're just like, well, like, here's how the world works, actually. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, in some cases, but like, really, right? Um, you know, and you see like kind of what extreme access to any amount of resources can can give you. It can give you a lot of control. It can give you, I because basically what I've learned is the world's about relationships. You right. know, I could have gotten the same education with the same books at you know Santa Monica College if right. I really was if I was really driven. But what you couldn't do at Santa Monica College is like meet the you know the governor of New York's daughter and like. Or people who like are already moving and shaking in places before they even step foot on this earth, right? You know, and so I think that like I recognize that as something where I'm like I'm not I'm not someone who pursues people because of their status, you know. In fact, that doesn't really work. Yeah, no one wants to like have a friend who's like, so what's your dad doing now? It's like no one. <laughs> that's a whack ass fucking friend. Yeah, it did. But I'm like, relationships are kind of like what makes things really easy. Like yeah. it's you know you can have an idea and it can be really worthy and you can kind of go through the obvious pathways to try and get it to happen or you can call the bitch who literally is the one who says yes or no and just be like bitch and they're like oh hey sure <laughs> you know <laughs> and yeah. like that's how the world actually works and so when i say resource rich like i'm not myself like financially super well off or anything like that and i certainly didn't come from that but i do have a, a very rich network of relationships that i mean look at how the fuck am i hosting this <laughs> Because yeah. I was like in Israel with Ethan, you know, which is you know yeah. insane to me. But I think you're, you know, uh, and, and I mean, listeners should know. I don't, I don't know you super well, right? I mean, we we met a couple times before this, obviously, um, enough to to do the show. But um, one thing that's immediately obvious to me is that you're the type of person who can um, manifest their own luck to a certain extent, and I think that. You know, and I'm saying this as kudos to you because you should know that it's not um, it, it, like this. There's there's just as many people that can go to Yale and not get not not get the knowledge and the wisdom that you picked up, not the education. I'm talking about this understanding of how networks work, and and even more importantly, you know, I think anybody with half a brain understands the whole. It's not what you know; it's who you know. But more importantly, how to steward those relationships in a way that you just said. And for you, it's natural that like it's not about knowing someone for their status, but there is a real magic to coordinating both um, personally beneficial relationships as well as relationships that help you move towards where you're going. And I think that um, one of the real skills that you seem to possess that's a very, very difficult thing to wrap their, most people's heads around is how to align incentives, like how to, mm. how to get what you want and need out of people, both from a personal and a professional standpoint, because people won't help you if it's just, Hey, what's in it for me. Right. Um, and so, so kudos to you. I mean, yes, there is a reason you're here, but it's not because, Ethan thought it would be financially beneficial to everyone for you to host it. It's because you guys like each sure. other, right? Right. But you also have, like, we like each other because like we have the same goals and values. You know, I think that 
uh, aligning incentives, definitely. I mean, no one ever does anything. Be- I mean, well, some people will do things because they like you and they will help you, even if it doesn't really make a lot of sense for them. But most of the time when people really will kind of like get behind what you're doing is because it's mutually beneficial. Right. You know, I mean, even when Ethan approached me, it's like, yeah, like, it's great to give me a platform. And I've been thinking about starting a podcast. And this is great practice or whatever it is. But also, like, I was a a valid and kind of authentic entry point for you guys to kind of explore this as well. And, And that's not quid pro quo. It's just kind of like, let's do things that work for both of us and that help each other. And that's what really friendships do. Like, your your best friends are people who are like invest in your success as much as you are in them. Yeah. And so obviously like the things you both care about align often. And I think that from a business perspective and especially in the art world where it is very exploitative, and especially for people who like don't have, I mean, a lot of people who control what happens in the art world are white and are rich and all, and like don't really care that much about what's in it for you. They care about kind of like how it's going to make them look or what's going to make their gallery look like or what's going to make them money. And so it's a very imbalanced space, which has been interesting for me to enter because I'm like not about that. I'm about making kind of new models for how this thing could actually help everyone who's in it yeah. uh, and not something where it's just like we need like rich white patrons to kind of like knight every black artist. You know, I can only imagine the bullshit that like Basquiat had to go through in here. you know like no wonder he was like i'm out i can't even deal with this fucking shit yeah uh and so i think that that's a a lot of what i do is like not trying to exploit my relationships to get something for me it's like how can we create something together that like is something we want to exist so it's like a lot of vision building and that's a lot of what i do as well it's like unlikely unlikely allies yeah it's like do we both agree we want this thing okay, then like, how do we both buy into that and then like use our resources to get to that place? Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, thank you. I'm, I'm learning to accept compliments. So I appreciate uh, <laughs> kind of what you said about uh, my somehow innate talents to, to kind of put that together. But it is something you have to work at and it doesn't always work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, but, it, but it is cool to hear, you know, like just as you talk about like the space in um, in Sacramento where you got your start and stuff like that, you know, as someone who's been around the art space, there's <clears throat> there's always you have a couple different components to make any sort of creative enterprise go. One is obviously you need the creative talent. Right. Um, and and I'm I'm someone who will always, uh, you know, speak about sort of the the divinity or like the supernatural powers that artists have, right? Like that's something that most mere mortals can't touch. Like they're just in touch with something that a lot of people aren't, right? But artists are also notoriously bad, you know, when you have to kind of um, bring an enterprise out of the realm of of the angels painting on angels' wings down to like, okay, we need a fucking space to do this thing in and we need to find how to get people through this thing so that we can all eat tonight. Um, There's like, there's that layer of people who I like to me, those that's the real magic touch, like how you can bind what is the real world? What is our actual sort of tangible goals that we're trying to achieve? And how do we get there by trying to wrangle, you know, artists, artists are just not the easiest people to work with. Right. And, uh, yeah, as we know, <laughs> we love them for that, but, but, uh, but a lot of respect to you because to me, the mystery is, how do you get those two things to coexist in the same place and actually uh, sort of uh, meet a goal, you know? 
Well, I mean, I like working with artists. Like, so, uh, I get this question a lot. Like, why artists? Like, there's so many people. Like, you could be working with developers or engineers to like achieve social equity or achieve like cool shit. Mm. Uh, and some of those people we do involve in projects, actually. But to me, artists are people who like look at something that's happening and then think a lot about it and then express themselves. And like, they express themselves in a way that's like, here's my solution to this, or here's my way of defining this for everyone else, so that y'all can think of solutions for it. And to me, that's compelling. A lot of people are just like, I mean, life is so fucking hard at this point that it's just enough to get up and do your shit and go to sleep and like wake up the next day. Yeah. So, it, you know, it, it can seem like a luxury to like take a step back or like be inside your feelings and then kind of like paint something or say something or write something or, or film something. Because um, a lot of people, you know, they don't even have the space to do that in. Uh, mm. But also it's like you have to make the space. Yeah, I think that like the artists who are the most successful are the ones who like just made it happen. You know, there's some artists who are born into privilege and kind of like still were smart and intuitive and insightful and like good for them. Yeah. But a lot of people are like, I can't not do this. Yeah. So I'm just going to figure this fucking shit out. Yeah. And I think that like there's this, you know, notion of the starving artist or these people who like are completely impractical, like have no kind of real world skills. I mean, before the Exhibit S space, I actually launched with the Arts and Business Council an incubator called Flywheel. And the whole thing was like, when I was talking to these artists, I'm like, so you go to school for art and they don't teach you like about marketing <laughs> or like uh, about accounting or like about like a business? Because essentially an artist, a solo artist is a business. Right. You know, I mean, you have to like get your customers, you have to retain them, you have to like market yourself, you have to develop a website, you have to like do your taxes. You <laughs> yeah. know, you have to like have insurance, bitch, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and I'm like, they don't even, and they, it's like, I'm like, it's, I think it's almost, you know, malfeasance in some way or kind of like, it's definitely yeah. negligible, neg negligent for these schools to kind of just push out these artists and be like paint and like money will come or like a Medici family or like some other shit. Right. It's like, right, no, right. it's like, you'll end up being a teacher. Yep. And not that being a teacher is bad. A lot of artists that I know who are really successful and good are also teachers, and that's the best way for to create other artists. But a lot of people are just kind of like, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. You know, like yeah. just make art and expect to, you know, feed my family or like have children or, you know, attract someone who wants stability. Yep. Uh, and so like the whole incubator was like, think of yourself as an entrepreneur, not yeah. just an artist. You're a creative entrepreneur. Like you are responsible for your business. And that's why, you know, galleries for a long time were necessary because like these artists like basically like didn't develop those skills on their own. A lot of these people avoid these very issues. That's yeah. the whole reason they're like doing their own thing. Uh, and so like telling them to like put a tie on and go into the fucking uh, state board of equalization is like the last thing they want to do. Right. right. Uh, and so I think that like that was a, that's why exploitation was so rampant because you basically like didn't want to teach these artists how to take care of themselves. Cause like, where's the money in that? Yeah. Uh, and so there was an opportunity for me to be like, look, artists, like you are just as valid. You're actually the most important thing happening. Right. So make sure that like you can control what happens to you and that you have like some amount of knowledge about like what it takes to really thrive. Otherwise, like you're, you're ripe to be taken advantage of. And like, you won't do the biggest things you dream of. Yeah. Because like you're, you'll basically just be trying to put food on the table. Yeah. Um, and so for me, as not an artist, but also not like, you know, I'm not like super, I'm like, I'm also kind of like people will laugh who know me. And they're like, Trey is not like the most like, like 
cutthroat business person. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm just I'm just a little savvy. I'm like, <laughs> I see what you're doing and like who would want that? Yeah. That person, you know, and I'm able to connect those two things really well. Yeah. Um but yeah, so I think that like it's it's something that's changing already on its own. Like the model was already broken. I'm just kind of like one of the many, many people who's in here figuring shit out in the interim to uh, advance things. But I think that like at the end of the day, you see this happening with every industry, you know, whether it's art, whether it's transportation, whether it's like finance, like people are getting in there and being like, wait, why are we doing this this way? Yeah. Yeah. And art's just kind of like a, a, a kind of more morally sound industry to do it in. Or, I mean, you have the cover of kind of like art is good. All right, everybody, we wanted to take a quick break to say, hey, we hope you're loving the show and we want to know more about who you are and what you want to hear. It helps us continue to make great content that you love and it helps us attract advertisers so we can get paid to continue to make awesome content for you. Please go to sodapodcast.com slash survey to help us out. That's S-O-T-A podcast.com slash survey. Another amazing way we support the show is through our Patreon page. We've actually worked down the street for Patreon for the last six years and seen them go from an idea to a platform that has helped creators make over $300 million. The thing we know from being in the art business is that selling art is hard, in part because it can be above someone's budget, or as a podcaster, you need 10,000 listeners before getting any of the ad agencies to talk to you. But that's not even always the best way to monetize. Patreon is a great way for you to connect with your fans and invite them to become members. So for any creators interested in learning more, you can actually apply to speak to a Patreon launch specialist by heading to patreon.com slash soda slash apply. That's patreon.com slash S-O-T-A slash apply. Thanks for checking us out and back to the show. Yeah, though, I mean, I think we've probably both experienced people who who take advantage of that, too, but... um... But so I'm curious, man, uh, just to get a little bit back on on the uh, topic of identity, have you found so one of the really interesting things about all of your guests, and it happened kind of organically, was that each of them um, highlighted a time that was like their wake up call to like, holy shit, I'm back, right? Like they're not in a positive way, unfortunately. Um, Almost never is. Right. and just to kind of, <laughs> yeah, right. And just to kind of highlight a little bit, like, so um, with Leela, it was this crazy incident where she was looking for a simple cup of hot water and basically got chased out of a shop with the store owner on the phone calling the cop, describing her as a black man. And with, uh, Martin Alexander Spratlin, it was as a little kid, right? Getting chased by skinheads, like some, some yeah. crazy shit. And, you know, and then I love this story with Jessa where she just kind of reached a boiling point in her art school training and ended up papering like the school's administration about like, yo, we're fucking here. Um, the day, the day before all of the patrons visited, that's the yeah. part that killed. I can only imagine like how much they did not want that to be happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like, oh man, like the the immediate pressure that the administration must have felt just be like, what the fuck do we do here? Uh, but I'm curious, is there, do you have a moment in your history that's like that or any time in your professional life that you've just seen 
a door slam closed or open because of your your own identity? Well, open would be interesting to think about because um, you don't think about all the doors that are open for you because, yeah. I mean, you think about the really obvious ones where you're like literally tokenized. Right. Um, I don't know that there's been a lot of moments where I was like, oh my God, I'm black now because I was always like so hyper aware of the fact that like, and my parents, you know, like my parent, my mom, my, pa- my parents are like a little bit older. Like my mom was 72 and she passed like two years ago and my dad's 75 now. And so my mom grew up in like segregated Texas. Yeah. Uh, and my dad, they both went to Howard. And so I've, I've never been like, oh my God, like I'm black now. Um, and I've almost gotten used to, and, and actually all three of these artists, they've also occupied a lot of spaces that have almost kind of inoculated us to being the only black person. I go so many places where, in fact, my friend Matt Cusick, he always, uh, he always, he says this about me. He's like, the first thing Trey does when he goes into a place is like, how many black people are in here? <laughs> you know, just to set the stage for my expectations. Right, um, right, right. And it's true, and, but like, it also is not, a, it's not an issue. It's not an issue the way I'm sure it's an issue for other black people where if they were to go into a space and see nothing but white faces, it would put them on edge or they would have like negative expectations and probably valid ones. Um, I would say my gayness is probably something that I'm more like, I think that like I'm more a- anxious about being pointed out in a negative way. Hmm. Um, and there's only, and, you know, the few instances I can think of where someone like, you know, attacked me or, or kind of wanted to make me feel endangered or scared was like about being gay, not yeah. necessarily about being black. Um, but yeah, I, I want to actually talk more about like the doors that have been open. Cause I think that a lot of people are as, as anxious about kind of being given things they don't deserve for their identity hmm. as they are about being penalized. Yeah. You know, a lot of black people don't want to be like, I'm just here because I'm black. Because like that is because a, a lot of you know what? Let's talk about that. So there's this was one incident that I can talk about that made me feel like that. Yeah. Or where a white a white person wanted me to feel that way, and I think that happens so frequently where white people want to make you feel like the only reason you have something that you deserve uh, is because uh, of your identity. You know, you don't feel that way, but right. like, other people right. want you to feel that way. So when I got into Yale, actually. I had a really good friend in high school named, I mean, should I say his name? Let's call him White. <laughs> <laughs> right, so right. White was like, you know, a good friend of mine and was applying to the same schools that I was. And actually at the time, I, I did not want to go to an Ivy League school. I wanted to go, I mean, I had gotten into Georgetown and I was like all about, you know, continuing my Jesuit education. Uh, definitely not brainwashed anymore about that bullshit, but yeah. that's a whole other podcast. And so... <laughs> He got waitlisted, or he maybe he got rejected, and then I got in, and then I decided to go to Yale. And so a lot of people were like, that's so awesome. Like, that's really great. But White was like, you only got that because you're black. And I was like, bitch, no. <laughs> like, I, I actually deserve it. But, like, so many black kids that I met when I was a freshman at Yale had that same experience where, like, some kid thought they were going to do it. And then, like, instead, like, Marquise got it. And, you know, white, their white was like, it's because you're black. Like, that's why I'm not there. It's because, like, people like you are taking my shit. And I'm like, bitch, there's plenty of white people at Yale. <laughs> so you just weren't fucking tight enough. Right, right, right. You know? But, like, that's, and that's something that you, you know, they call, talk about imposter syndrome. Yeah. That's imposed on a lot of black people. We're like, you're literally called an imposter. Like, you're not a real Yale student. You're just a black kid who's like, somehow sneaked through and like got, you know, 
a really amazing privilege because there's just not enough of you here and like you're not you're gonna survive. And in fact, a lot of people do internalize that. I think that when we got to Yale, there was maybe let's see, like our class is like twelve fifty. Let's say there was like forty black men. I think that like maybe half graduated. Mm. And like don't and you're like only in retrospect am I like, oh wow, like that was probably because like it was a really hostile environment. And that's another thing that um I've learned almost retro because I was like president of my class senior year. Like I was someone who was like, I love this place. Like Yale is like the best place for me to be self-actualized. But yeah. a lot of people that I've talked to subsequently were like, that was not my experience. Huh. You know, like when the, the kids started protesting uh, in like 2016, it was, and they were like, there was like a, a Halloween costume or like some SAE party. And I was like, get over it. You know, that was my initial response. In fact, I'll say this on record, like Whitney Sparks, she's a good friend of mine from Yale and, you know, much more in touch with like woke shit than I was at the time. And maybe now, uh, and I posted like, you guys are like trying to spit on the Silliman master over her email about like, get over Halloween costumes. Like get, like, give me a break. You're at Yale. What's the most racist thing that's happened to you? Like already you're at this campus. Right. And she was like, you're going to, you're going to regret saying this one day. And I had to like, eventually like two years after that be like i actually do regret it whitney you were right because my experience is not everyone's and a lot of people did have a really terrible kind of racially fraught really disrespected experience yeah and just because that wasn't mine and maybe like i'm a little bit more able to kind of let shit slide or let shit go or like I'm so confident that maybe like, I'm just like going to demean the person who's demeaning me anyway. So I don't even respect what they say. Uh, a lot of people internalize a lot of these experiences and it, it makes it really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, and like, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm happy for you that, that we live in a day and age where um, you can't even recall something that was like in your face. I'm not doing this for you because you're black. You're like, you know, people just, outright using racial slurs and shit like that. Like, I'm glad that we're in a day and age where that's much less common. And yet, and for me, for sure, for you. Well, and I, I mean, I think it's safe to say that, like, in general, in our country, um, there's less of that than there was, say, 75 years ago, right? But the maybe the, the I mean, more out less outward that right, less like we're still shooting 12 year old black kids for BB guns. And that's what I mean is like the 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 unfortunate part of that is that like the racism has just gotten institutionalized and it it happens in less outward ways and more insidious ways that allow people to make excuses and try to hide behind shades of gray that's really uncomfortable for um for like for me as a white dude right i'm like i don't know how to navigate this as well as just distancing myself from someone who uses the n-word right like it's a much more difficult scenario that we're in today i mean i would i would much rather someone call me nigger than like not give me a loan right you know or a mortgage or like a job you know i mean like there, what was it uh there's a comedian now uh, i can't recall his name but he's so fucking funny and he was talking about kind of being on the the kind of southern comedian circuit and how he'd go to these cities where like he wouldn't even stay the night because like he would say all these racial jokes and then like you know he was like someone gonna be waiting outside this motel room but he was talking yeah. about you know, someone calling him the n-word during one of his sets and he said something i thought was interesting he was like you gotta respect someone 
who is willing to, at this moment, use one of the worst words that we know against mm. you to your face. And he meant respect, like, know that they will fuck you up. If they're willing to do this, then, like, don't think they won't do worse shit. So act accordingly. Right. And I think that there is something, like, I would, I mean, I would much rather someone unveil themselves to me as a racist than say, like, nice things to me or, like, give me a plaque and then be like, don't let him charge this much. <laughs> right, or, right, right. Don't, don't let him live in this house. Yeah. You know, like, that's the kind of shit that, like, I, you know, respectability or, like, or institutionalization, like, which is, by the way, like, racism has been institutionalized. That's the, that's the whole basis of this country. Right. Um, so I think that right now what we're dealing with is the reckoning of that. Like, people are, pe you've been able to kind of, like, not acknowledge that for a long time. And now it's, like, with Trump, one of the best things he's done is to, like, unmask all this bullshit hmm. you can't hide behind respectability you can't hide behind redlining or you know secret redlining like everyone's like oh shit everything is fucking racist yeah wow like let's talk about that and that's why like everyone's fighting yeah so what do you think where do you see this going like where do you see this national conversation going in your mind i don't know i mean How, let me <sighs> let me let me ask it this way um, how do you hope, especially sort of in response to, uh, let's bring it back to the podcast that you just did, right? I mean, you just, you just did three hour long podcasts highlighting, um, black artists and their experience, black and black biracial artists and sort of their experience with identity and art. How do you hope someone hears that? And what do you hope their response is? Like if they can hear, um, where where people have struggled and what people are trying to highlight um what would you hope that an ally would do with that information well i hope it generates allyship i hope that i hope that some you know white lady somewhere in like whiteville of white white america <laughs> happens upon this podcast during this month and listens to someone's perspective that she does not know that she's never known and says hmm I didn't think about what it was like to be that person. Maybe she herself was an art teacher at Cranbrook at one time. Hmm. And maybe she saw a black female in the photography program who did not come back after the first year. And now she thinks about like, oh, wow, what was it like for like Gertrude back then? You know, right. I didn't think about it from her perspective. And now I will. Or now like I have some identity, identity with that person that I didn't have before. That's like the most banal, but like, probably the most common thing to expect is people being like black people are human beings. They have complicated emotions and experiences and I should like respect those as valid. Yeah. I, in an ideal deal world, they're like, I'm going to like, write, Yeah, I'm going to go protest outside Cranbrook till they get a black Dean like that. I want to, I mean, I think that like, that's, there's a range of things that I, that need to happen for things to change for these podcasts, not to be necessary yeah. or for these like emphasis not to be necessary. Um, and so in terms of the conversation, like a lot of these black artists already articulated, it's like black people need to be in charge. You know, we yeah. can't just be programming during February. We can't just be a guest host on a podcast. Like we have to be the producers of the podcast. We have to be the people who give money to produce the producers of the podcast, you know? And so I think like, that's what the conversation is shifting toward. It's like, not how can we get some space or how can we get some, uh, visibility. It's like, how are we going to become the decision makers? Mm. You know, even yeah. Ryan Coogler was hired by a white person. 
Yeah. You know, Marvel's not a black company. So, I mean, and that's, you know, goes across the spectrum of gender and race and gay and all that stuff. It's like, you just have to kind of relinquish a little bit of control. Uh, and this is what Leela said. She's like, you know, it doesn't have to be zero sum. Like, you giving up control or ownership, like literal ownership, does not necessarily even diminish how much stuff you own. In fact, it could make what you have that much more valuable. You know, like if you hang on to something until it's brittle and dead, like you're not rich, you're scared. Right. Letting everyone control it, like that's when you truly have something valuable that people really want anyway. And like that's the kind of sweet spot that I'm able to find, hopefully. I'm like, you know what? You giving us this opportunity to, to make a bold statement or say something that needs to be said doesn't make you weaker. It actually makes you stronger. Like yeah. the the worst person in high school is the bitch who's like so concerned about what she's wearing that she talks shit about everyone. <laughs> a truly cool person, like don't give a fuck what you think about them, and that's what makes them actually cool. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So in terms of like social, uh, yeah, and in terms of kind of like what people, like something that's valuable is something that's confident and something that's inclusive and empowers others. And that's where I hope America, if America was to truly be great, like not great again, but like actually great, it's right. a place that like allows people to kind of achieve that and like that's the myth it's like america's this place where like you can start you know horatio alger it's like you know who was by the way white or whatever it's like he could be whatever he wants it's like a lot of people buy into that and a lot for a lot of people they've made it happen but not because this place is structured for that yeah so that's what i hope happens that we restructure uh our whole idea of like what makes a community valuable like what makes people worthy and then we can like really relax Hmm. Do you know, is there anyone in the art space right now that's doing this well? Like any, any organization or any artist that you're like really excited to kind of back and put your faith in? Well, I would say that like, you know, so I would say, and I think that Martin talked about this, like the underground museum here in Los Angeles, which is in like off Crenshaw. Uh, and it's a black owned or owned black founded space uh noah davis who's passed away but you know his family has continued it and they've actually been um they developed a partnership with mocha which is as you know like you know the contemporary art museum here in los angeles is very prestigious and uh that's a relationship that i think is kind of mutually beneficial and tight it's like here's this black space where like Salons be releasing albums like Beyonce be showing her face there like <laughs> black people in the neighborhood the whole reason they founded it was because they wanted to have like really good art in a community that like wasn't going to get it on their own or like w the traditional institutions weren't going to prioritize this neighborhood uh and it was they were doing such a good job that Mocha was like yeah we'll lend you some pieces and like now like Mocha has like three campuses like one in downtown one in Hollywood and the underground museum and I think that like that is a relationship that could be replicated like why does like the guggenheim not have a place in like bedsty that's like controlled by black people not like they install their people and like there's a gleaming white space in bedsty you know it's like yeah. find what's working out in the community and just uplift that i think that is a model don't co-opt it don't try and be like oh this is a cool happening new neighborhood like let's like open up an outpost ps1 it's like let's see what black because there's people in these communities who have been doing it who've been doing it for a long ass time and have not and been, been doing it with like a lack of resources mm. so just put put white resources behind black shit you know yeah. and you'll get 
more bang for your buck if that's what you care about, but also you'll get something better. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, look, it's it's been an awesome trip to uh to have you aboard for the last few episodes i hope i hope you enjoyed it as much as we did man i think you did an awesome job i think you set the bar really high for us and for our for our guest hosts i hope that people follow along with everything you're, that you're doing uh you're a beautiful dude on the inside and the outside i know listeners can't see your face but if they did they would understand what i'm saying <laughs> you're a good looking guy and uh thanks it's been a lot of fun, yeah, man. I know you're spoken for. <laughs> I am, unfortunately, yeah. but uh, uh, thank you. No, man. I, I, no, I, man I, I hope we stay friends, you know, offline too. And uh, it's been a great experience. Do you have any any last words? Anything that you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, I mean, kudos to you. Like, no one asked you to do this, and I always want to give credit to people who like do cool shit and like think without anyone making them right. Like you guys didn't have to approach me. Even Ethan didn't have to approach me. Uh, and it wasn't an easy thing to do. Even like when you, when I agreed to do it, it wasn't like it was a walk in the park to even make this happen. So I just hope that like, there's, if there's some other takeaways from listeners, it's like, it's not that hard. It's not easy, but you can open up what you're doing to include more people. And it's not the end of the world. And in fact, it creates a rich conversation and it's fun. Yeah, uh, and I really appreciate you guys uh, taking the time. It's been a distinct pleasure of mine. All right, so as as our listeners know, before I can let you go, and you were fortunate enough to do this one time, but we're gonna we're gonna revisit the case and see what new information you have for us. We're gonna do some rapid <laughs> fire questions, getting to know you stuff. You down? Okay, I am extremely down. All right, the, the first one is always a softball. Should be easy. The first one is. What is your favorite dessert? Mm. I'm going to say banana pudding. Banana pudding? Trace leche is almost stuck in there. Trace leche's cake. But I'm going to say banana pudding in terms of like, what could I eat all the time? <laughs> I like that. I like that. Do you do like the Nilla wafers and, and, uh, yeah. What is, I do. Yeah, I, I do a pretty class. I mean, I I actually have not made banana pudding. It's on my, it's on my list of things to bring into my repertoire. <laughs> um, my mom had a really awesome banana pudding, but it's like you know you can't really go wrong with like banana pudding and yeah. like wafers and banana slices. It's fucking bomb. I love it. I love it. That brings me back, man. That's like real country for me. That brings me back to like growing up on a farm at picnics. That was an always there kind of thing. Hell yeah! All right. So next one. This is an interesting one. This is just a good getting to know you, man. What's your type? What do you look for in your partners? Oh. Oh my God! How can this be rapid? <laughs> uh, I've been get, as a single man uh, who is eligible. I think that I've been getting this question a lot because I've been like, "Fuck!" I deleted Grinder for life. I'm right? just like, I love myself too much for this. Um, so I've been relying upon like people just being like, "You should meet so and so," and they're like, "What's your type, though?" And I mean, like, I would say that there's a when I reflect on the guys that I've dated, I could like stereotype their traits, but like since I'm trying to avoid those situations, like what do I actually <laughs> look for? I would say someone who's passionate about what they do. I think that like what I do is like really kind of like visible and flashy and kind of like could subsume someone else into it. I want yeah. someone who is like, that looks great, but like I'm really confident and capable and happy with what I have going on. So I would say someone who's confident, self-possessed and excited about their life is probably like, the most important thing. And someone who's like irreverent doesn't take themselves too seriously. And, um, 
uh, is able to give and take compliments. I like that. Where's that last one come from? That's interesting. Because someone accused me a few days ago of like not being able to take a compliment. That's why I went out of my way when you right, compliment right, me right. say thank you. Because I'm like, you know, uh, you know, like whatever. Like someone was like, you have nice arms. I'm like, uh, no, I don't. Like, I haven't been to the gym in a long time. They're like, why don't you just take a fucking compliment? And I was like, you know what? That's actually a pretty good piece of advice because like you have to be somewhat confident to accept a compliment because like yeah. our instinct is to be like to diminish ourselves, right? So it also takes, you know, a lot to kind of tell someone they're great. So I think that like the kind of person who's comfortable in both settings is someone I can probably get down with. Yeah. And, I, someone, who, and someone who deserves compliments. That's another trait. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> someone that you want to compliment enough that they got yeah, to receive someone it. Who I, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> you good. That's good. funny, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I hadn't thought about it in that perspective. I like that, though. It is totally a sign of confidence. I, I, I kind of had never read that that way, but I like that. All right. Last but certainly not least, what is your favorite words of wisdom? What's something that you're always going back to? Hmm. <laughs> actually, this is funny. Ethan will appreciate this. So for our reality trip, we actually were asked, like, you know, inspirational quote or something like that. And I think that my quote was, do you, boo? And it <laughs> seems kind of trite, but it's like, do you? It's yeah. like, you shouldn't be out here concerned about what everyone else is doing or like what people think you should do. Just do you. And if you're doing that to the max, then you're probably okay. Yeah. Because also, like, yeah. what else do you have to fall back on at the end of the day? You can't do anyone else. Yeah. I love that, so man. That's, that's my words of wisdom. Do you, boo. That's something that always comes back, too, right? Like, you tell, like, a 16-year-old kid that so that they can get through the, the like, high school blues. And then you tell, like, an 18-year-old kid that when they're trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives. And then you tell, you know... a mid-twenties kid that when they're trying to figure out the relationship and stuff. It's something that just always comes full circle. Yeah, we're telling 35, 34-year-old black gators that like every day. I'm like, just be concerned about your damn self. <laughs> <laughs> and do that. Do that properly and like you'll be okay. I love it, man. I love it. Well, Trey, it's been awesome, man. Thank you so much for the time. It's been a great adventure to, to get to know you. And uh, I, I hope we keep in touch and I hope we'll hear your voice again on the podcast sometime soon. For sure. You know, and June's right around the corner if you need a gay dude <laughs> <laughs> for Pride Month. There we go. Right. Take care. Thank Peace. you so much. Peace, bud. As always, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of State of the Art. And thank you so much to Trey for being our first guest host. Um, he's doing awesome work. Please follow along. Uh, his website is treyborden.com. That's T-R-E-B-O-R-D-E-N. Com. You can also find him on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Look up Trey Borden Co. or just his name, Trey Borden, and you'll find him. And listeners, I really hope you liked this guest host format. It's something new for 2019 that we're trying. We're really excited about it. It allows us to approach some more sensitive topics um, and do them more justice than we could probably do by ourselves. So if you like it, please rate and review us. Give us five stars on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And next week, we will be back with another guest host and another monthly theme. So I hope you check us out then. Thanks.